We're going to look at two passages that teach the same lesson. I'd like for you first to go with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, beginning with verse 20. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? And she said unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand, the other on thy left, in thy kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You know not what ye ask. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said unto him, We are able. And he saith unto them, You shall drink indeed of my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my father. And when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. But Jesus called them unto him and said, You know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. And as they departed from Jericho, a great multitude followed him. If you would now go to Mark 10, I'm going to read the same story and another gospel, and I'll begin reading with verse 35. This one's a little more gracious to James and John. They don't mention his mother. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldst do for us whatsoever we shall desire. And he said unto them, What would you that I should do for you? Grant unto us that we may sit on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, You know not what you ask. Can you drink of the cup that I drink of, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, We can. And Jesus said unto him, You shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized with all shall you be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. But it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to him and said unto them, You know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister, and whosoever you will be the chiefest shall be your servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. So here are the two accounts from these two Gospels describing the same moment. It seems sad and, and a little bit ridiculous that James and John's mother would come making that request. I'm not sure what would have set that moment up, but Jesus understanding that she was not the one that he needed to be dealing with never even acknowledged her. He didn't address her except to ask her what she actually wanted past that. He only addressed James and John. But I want to tell you, in this passage, there is some of the deepest and most profound things that can happen within the Scripture. Jesus' answers, his explanations, tell us something of God's economy that doesn't look anything like the economy of mankind. It doesn't look anything like the economy that's on this world. I'm going to actually use the, the passage in Mark. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came making a particular request. You notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke them for asking. He's not upset because they're asking for these 
prominent positions within his kingdom. As a matter of fact, I guess from all that they knew and all that they had experienced up to this point, making that request was reasonable and perhaps not honorable by the way that it was done, but they were wanting to be participants in the kingdom that God was going to build, that Jesus was going to head. So he doesn't rebuke them for their request. He doesn't say that they shouldn't have asked. So they approached him with this question, and he asked, what could I do for you? And they make the request. And Jesus' answer, let me go back to verse 38. But Jesus said unto them, You know not what you ask. Can you drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? He's fixing to tell us something. He's fixing to tell us, if you want to be in the kingdom prominent, if you want to be recognized, if you want to hold a position in the kingdom, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. For us to continue to teach that when we get to heaven, the ground is level, is perfectly okay. As long as we will teach that between our departure, and let's just say it's at the rapture, and the coming of a new heaven and a new earth is a thousand years of a millennial reign. And I want to assure you there is a distinct difference of what will happen to us in that thousand years. The ground within that thousand years is not level. Teaching after teaching after teaching, and whether it be the story of the talents or the story of the pounds, over and over we're taught this story that when someone comes back and says, "I, I took your pound and here's five, what does Jesus say? What does the nobleman say, Jesus, in that story? He says, well done, I will make you ruler over five cities. The one who brings back three pounds I will make you ruler over three cities. The one who wrapped it up in a napkin, he called a wicked servant. I want to tell you, there was a direct correlation between the response of God in response to what they had been given. Again, that's a teaching that doesn't get taught very much. But when we stand at the Bema seat, it's our turn at the judgment seat. That is not whether we're saved or lost. That is about receiving the rewards that have been established for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 tells this powerfully well, that we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 3 says, and those, everything, all of our works will be tried by fire. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble. There will be a difference within the millennial reign of what happens to us based on how we have lived. I would hate for us to stand at the Bema seat and someone to say, well, my pastor never taught me that. He never said that. He never gave that teaching. I didn't understand. I'm not sure ignorance would be the best excuse at that moment. But I do know that we have to recognize clearly that there's a difference. So Jesus is saying there's nothing wrong with wanting to be great in the coming kingdom. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't criticize them. Matter of fact, he actually says, if you want to do it, here are two keys. And this is what he says. But Jesus answered and said, You know not what you ask. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of? So that's a future statement. What is the cup that he's going to drink? The crucifixion. He's saying, are you willing to lay down your life? And I want to assure you that he's not asking you, are you willing to die? Peter, in that moment when they came to arrest Jesus, Peter stood up in all courage and bravery and was determined to stand and fight and not let them take Jesus. He was willing to do that. That wasn't the big question about Peter. The big question about Peter came a little bit later. 
Because the question isn't, are you willing to die? The question is, are you willing to live? What Jesus was saying, are you willing to lay down your life so that you can pick mine up? Are you willing to surrender your will so that you can have my will? Are you willing to surrender your purposes to have my purpose? Are you willing to surrender your ideas, your views, your values so that you can have mine? If I had a glove laying right there and I were to tell that glove, I want you to get up and work. Because I know I've seen gloves working before. And so I'm standing over that glove, giving that glove specific instructions of what's going to happen to that glove. What's, what's it going to do? It's going to lay there. So I decide, well, maybe it needs a cheerleader. So I bring in some cheerleaders, and, and they get around that glove, and they start chanting and helping that, and giving that, that glove some encouragement. So now then I say, okay, now glove, get up and work. What's going to happen? Absolutely nothing. So I said, well, maybe it needs training. So I get training. I get people in here who are skilled, and they say, okay, glove, this is the way you do these tasks. And when they get through training this glove, what's going to happen? Absolutely nothing. Why? Because that glove was so designed that it becomes the perfect representation of what is in it. It only has ability when it's filled. It can only represent what it's supposed to represent when it's actually filled with the purpose in which it was designed. We are created, absolutely created to be filled. And we cannot come into the reality of our design and our purpose and the uniqueness of our life until we're willing to lay down our life. I'm the glove until I'm willing to, to say, I can't, it's impossible, and let the Holy Spirit fill me. Because then I become the representation of God so that somebody looks at me just like they do that glove. There's no acknowledgement, there's no credit given to the glove. Everybody knows that that glove is doing exactly what the hand desires to do. I long for the day in my life and in others when we finally can come to the place of the full realization that my life is designed to be a representation, the full representation of God. What a strange moment it had to have been when Adam was laying there on the ground because in that body was the full intention, the full plan, and the full purpose of God. Laying there perfectly formed, the organs, the blood vessels, the brain, everything perfectly ready, lacking one thing. What did it need? It needed the pneuma to make it come to life so that every plan in it, every desire in it, every expression of God that it could possibly be in it was only possible when the breath hit it. We go about living our lives, making decisions, making our plans, going about all the things that we do, and God's saying, all I'm waiting on is the moment when you'll open your mouth and let me breathe into you that life, that pneuma, that spirit, so that now all the full potential that God has put in us, everything that he designed for us to be and to do, can come to life. That will not happen, according to what Jesus is teaching, until we, like him, are willing to lay down our life. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. But Christ lives in me. He can't come live in me until I'm willing to be crucified with him. Until I'm willing to die, he can't come. He can't come and take possession. So Jesus is saying, are you willing, are you ready to drink of this cup? While John had been exiled to Patmos, it says that Herod now persecuting the church in Acts chapter 12, verse 2, that the first martyr of the disciples was this James. He drank the cup. 
He was willing to go all the way. He was willing to take and say in those moments and to drink the same cup that Jesus drank. So he was first. And Jesus says, are you willing to do that? I shared the story with you and about this woman named Linda Jones who lived in Midland. And she tells some powerful things about how God has worked in her life. She broke her hip. She had some things that she needed to do. And the doctor says, well, you'll need to take six weeks off. And she said, I can't take six weeks off. And he kind of nonchalantly said, well, just how long is it going to take you to heal then? She said, well, it took Jesus three days to be raised from the dead. I, I think I can walk out of here in three days. She walked out of the hospital in three days. But to see that kind of power, to live that kind of life. I also told you, you know, that she, her husband, Stan, had just bought her a new Chrysler. And he, worked, he was a machinist, and he had bought her this new car. They ran Beulah Land Ministries, headed it up, and they took Jews from all over the world and gave them the money and the resources to get, to get back to Israel. So they would pick up people at the airport, and they needed this car. But she called Stan one morning, and she said, Stan, I'm supposed to give this car away. And he said, how did you know? And she told him. He said, okay, do you know to whom you're supposed to give it? And he, she said, not yet. But on the following Saturday morning, she gets a call from a pastor in Idaloo, the new pastor of an Assembly of God church in Idaloo. He said, God gave me this number. He said, if I'd call, if someone had a car for me, he said, I gave my car away a few days ago. He said, call this number. Someone would have a car for me. She said, come get it. Pulls up and drives off in her new Chrysler. How do you think the story should go from there? If God is who we would make him out to be, what would be the next step? She'd get a nicer car. She didn't get anything. So they started, they used their old pickup, the jump seat, to go to the airport. God's economy didn't say that he promised her one, so she, she didn't get one. You have to be willing to live this life of sacrifice. You have to be willing to say, God, I don't have a will. I don't have a plan for my life. I don't have a purpose for my life, except the one that you have established. And it's truly, truly rare to find anyone who's willing to step into that kind of a story, to actually lay down their life. And Jesus says, for you to be great, I'm glad you're asking. I want you to ask that question. I want that to be your desire, is are you willing to lay down your life? Then he makes this next statement. That one was one about the future. Then he says, uh, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. So now he's speaking of a current situation, not something that's going to happen in the future. He's talking about something that has already happened that he's living in right now. So he's asking, are you willing not only to do this, are you willing to be baptized as I was baptized? And the question should be easy and obvious. Sure, I will. And that's exactly how they responded. But we have to go back and say, what did Jesus' baptism look like? He's saying, are you willing to be baptized as I was baptized? So when, when, again, when Jesus came up out of the water, what happened? Number one, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He was adopted by his father. For the first time in Jesus' life, all of what he might have known, the world believed him to be the son of Joseph. The world believed him to be this man's son. At this moment, in this drastic change, when God the Father opened his mouth and says, that's my son, and I'm pleased with him, all of a sudden there was a reality to Jesus and to the rest of the world. This is the son of God. What would that make? What happens over here just a few days later in the wilderness when Jesus begins to address Satan? 
So I don't care what you say. My Father is God. What would happen to us if we would step into that same reality? Because he said, I want you to have the same baptism I've had. If you're going to be great in the kingdom, you're going to have to do exactly in your baptism, in your life, what I have done in mine. So he's saying, if you're going to be great, you not only have to lay down your life, you have to be willing to be adopted by the Father and function as a child of God. And I don't think we have even begun to scratch the surface of what does that mean? What does it mean for me to have God as my Father? It says that down at the end of that hall where there's this great throne room, and I'm this kid playing down in the hall, and I hear my father talking down there, what do I get to do? Run to him. And, and I get to run up into his lap and I get for him to hold me because I have authority, I have a position where I can actually go to him and be in his lap. But also when I talk to people, I say, you know, you can say what you want, but my father's the king, king of glory. He's the creator of the universe. You can, you can kind of try anything you want, say anything that you want. But here's a reality that I have accepted. I have been adopted by my father. And Jesus says, you've got to be adopted. Second. The dove came down, which represented what? Holy Spirit. Father adopted him. The Holy Spirit gave him authority. We get confused theologically about a lot of things. When Adam and Eve committed that original sin, this part is now dead. Because of sin. When I'm born, I'm the fallen heir of a fallen Adam. I have inherited this sin nature. My sin that I actually commit simply comes into agreement with what I had already inherited. So the sin inheritance and my sin now creates the same separation. My spirit is dead until what? Until Jesus comes to do what first? What does his blood do? Covers the sin. The sin that created the separation, his blood now covers, as, not as an expiation in the Old Testament, but a propitiation in the New Testament. It would be the difference between the expiation, the blood of animals says, I'll cover it, but if I remove it, my hand is still there. Because there's no blood capable yet of actually doing anything with that sin except creating temporary covering that has to be redone every year. What does a propitiation do? I'm going to cover your sin, but... I take my hand away, the sin's gone. Because this compartment right here, when the sin is dealt with, the blood of Jesus makes it clean. So the compartment is clean now of death. It's clean now of sin. That stuff's out of there. Why is that necessary? Because somebody wants to come live in that space. Somebody wants to come take up that space. So what Jesus did, he made us ready. He dealt with our sin. He cleansed cleansed our heart. So that the Holy Spirit now could come take up residence and live in that spot. Most of the Christian world will gladly accept that this happened. But don't understand that that didn't happen just so that we could go to heaven someday. That happened so that the Holy Spirit would have a place to come reside because the Spirit was now alive again. That was the purpose. So that you and I would have the Spirit of God so that the world would now see the hand slipped up into the glove. And now look at us functioning in all those things and see whom? See Jesus, see, see God, see the Holy Spirit, see his power, see his authority. If we refuse this peace, we will not function with authority. And wonder why it says in the Bible that they had a form of godliness but knew not the power thereof. Because they wouldn't receive the mechanism by which the power came. And we're still bewildered 
I had somebody in my office this past week. I love these stories. I, I, and it's not my testimony. I'll tell you a little bit about it. I just can't tell you whom because it's his story. I visited with him about some of these things a few weeks ago. And he left my office. And he said, I, I just went to my pickup. And he said, I sit down and spent a little time. He said, I drove off a little bit later. And he said, I'm, I'm sitting there. And he said, I'm just asking the Holy Spirit to fill me. And he said, it fell on him like a cloud. He said, it was feeling inside my physical body that I have never had before in my life. He said, there was no doubt in that moment of request that the Holy Spirit came and did exactly what I asked him to do. And I said, what happened next? He said, he took me to the wilderness. Up here, he could now speak as the Son of God. He received the Holy Spirit. He had authority over the beast that came against him, and there were wild animals. He had authority to deal with Satan. What was the wilderness about? So that Jesus, remembering he's human, he had to know that these things were real. He had to come against those things so that when he spoke, these things became real to him. He had never performed a miracle before. He had never done these things before. We know that turning the water to wine, it says in John, was his first miracle. So this stuff had to become real to him. He was human. It had to become real to him. When those things came against him, in those moments, these things that happened to him at his baptism had to come to life. Third, it says that heaven was opened unto him, so he was given access to heaven. So that every time he needed to give love to someone, every time he needed for it to be healing, restoration, peace, whatever it was, he was reaching into a heavenly provision that he saw in that moment, realizing I'm not giving away anything of myself. I'm reaching into a heavenly provision and handing out what has been freely given to me. What a powerful difference. He says, if you want to be great in the kingdom, that's your baptism. So that now instead of eating out there what Satan was tempting him to eat, why did he not have to eat of that stuff? Because he was feeding from the storehouse of heaven. The wilderness for Jesus was this had to become real to him. This has to become real to us. We function under an open heaven. We, there is no limit to what God has made available to any one of us who by faith will function and actually obey what he has for us to do. It's not I get to pick, it's obedience. He wants to demonstrate in obedience. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be great, I'm tickled to death. You're going to have to be willing to walk in such a way that your life is laid down to pick up mine. You've got to be willing to let me fill you. You've got to take on this adoption to be baptized as I was baptized. Because there is no greatness without it. It would seem strangely unusual, I guess, for Jesus at 30 years old, beginning this ministry, to come up out of the water and say, you know, I'm glad I know I'm going back to be with my father someday. That's really good news. I just have no desire over the next three and a half years to live in any form or fashion in a way that would be pleasing to my father. How strange that must sound in the heart of God when he paid such a price for you and I and we're saved. And then sees in that heart absolutely no desire to take on this baptism, that filling of the Holy Spirit, that reality of life, so that we become the evidence of God on this earth. And again, I'll use the same illustration that I always use, but I'll just pick on Victoria. If I said, Victoria, go down to the auditorium and take that grand piano and put it in the back of my pickup. The first answers would come, great idea, but that's impossible. So I tell you, but wait, you know, there's ten guys down there. They know what they're doing. They have a dolly and they have a crate. I just need for you to go tell them where to take it and make sure that it gets there. 
Okay, that's possible. I have adequately equipped you to do what I've asked you to do. So you, you open the doors and you're coming down the sidewalk with that grand piano and somebody's driving by and they're mildly curious and say, I wonder what they're doing with their piano. But if I did something different, if I said, Victoria, I want you to take the piano and put it in the back of my pickup and I'm going to do one thing for you, is I'm going to put inside you the power of God, the strength of his arms, the power of his back, the might of his shoulders, and the power of his legs. I'm going to put God himself in you. So you go down there and you squat down under that grand piano and you pick it up and you got it on your shoulders now. And you walk through the auditorium and you duck under those two double doors and now you're going down the sidewalk with it carrying that grand piano on your shoulders. And somebody's driving by. I want to tell you, there's no longer mild curiosity. What are they going to do? They're going to stop. And they're going to come running and say, Victoria, how are you doing this? What's your answer going to be? Power of God, it's not me. God who lives in me. And now the mystery of God is back. And the world's not blinking their eyes and ignoring a God who has no power. They'll finally see what God had fully intended, that the demonstration of God's power was to be the, re the reality of our life so that the world would be changed because they saw the hand inside the glove. We've lost that. And Jesus says, you want to be great? Wonderful. Let's go a little further. And they said unto him, we can. Notice his response. And Jesus said unto them, Yes, you shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I'm baptized with all shall you be baptized. He's saying, that's, so your answer is correct. He knew that later on when he actually tells his disciples in the book of John, and he gives them the Holy Spirit that they receive it, he knows that to be true. In verse 40 he says, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. He's saying, that's not my choice. But it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And we can get lost right there very quickly. He's saying greatness, positions, places of honor aren't mine to give. Now we know by his confession what he's telling us. He's saying that's in my father's hands. So he doesn't even tell them that they're not going to be the ones who sit there. He doesn't correct them and say no that those positions are somebody else's. That's what makes the ten other disciples angry. They would have liked to heard him say no. They're not yours to have. That would have made them happier, but Jesus didn't answer that way. He simply said, that's not mine to give. Could you still be there? Yes. He doesn't correct them. He doesn't even tell them that their thoughts are wrong. And then he goes on to say, and when the, the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. So here's this next piece of a question. Greatness go to those who somehow please the Father. How do we please the Father? This whole passage is deep in this reality of spirit, soul, and body. If Jesus saw someone who was blind, someone who was lame, someone who was hurting, someone who was lost, someone who was at the well and had been married five times, Jesus knew something. If he saw it, he's standing here, sees it in his soul, he's moved with passion, but the thing that he did not do was he did not go and meet that need because he knew he couldn't. He knew he had nothing in himself as Jesus to go take care of that need. So not once in the scripture did Jesus ever perform a miracle. Strange to get your head around. Jesus never performed one miracle. That's wonderful news to me. He does not expect me to perform a miracle. 
He has no desire for me to perform a miracle because if I were able to, who would I claim would need to get the glory? Me. Absolutely. So what did his compassion, when he saw the need, he was moved by it. But what did that move cause him to do? John 5.19. Couldn't have said it more clearly. Without the Father, I can do nothing. I cannot meet that need. Somehow I've got to engage him. Somehow I have got to pursue him. Somehow he has got to become involved in this story. Jesus knew what we have to learn. Our mission trips can't be based on need. Our ministries can't be based on need. Boy, we try that. wonder why we go and we spend and we drive and we work. And there seems to be no evident result around the world of all the great missionary efforts that are going on right now. The world doesn't seem to be changing much in the reality of the Christian world. Why? Because most of our ministries are based on that. It's no basis for ministry. It's no basis for missions. We see the need. We do what Jesus did. And he went to the Father. And he said quite clearly, I can only do what I see my Father do. Where did he see it? What does that word in Greek? In the mind's eye. Here's a, a blind man standing in front of him. He sees it. He goes to the Father. He sees in his mind's eye, spit on the ground, make the mud, rub it in the guy's eyes, and tell him to go wash in the pool. And when Jesus is obedient, when he does what he saw, God the Father releases supernatural power, and God performed the miracle. The Father performed the miracle. So what will please him? What would God love to see in us? What would bring us to those positions of prominence? What would bring us to those realities in the millennial reign where we're actually ruling over cities, where we're actually taking these positions of honor that God say it's not wrong to want, it's not wrong to ask for, it's not wrong to pursue? How do you do it? You live in the reality of this, and there's the word. You obey. Recognize you can't obey until you see, or you can't obey until you hear. So it says if you're going to obey, you've got to be willing to put yourself in a position to see me and to hear me. I want to tell you, when any of us will take the time and by faith be willing to take that step, life becomes this unusual, unusual mystery. To watch people be set free. I do this, and maybe I do it way too much. You know, Melissa has shared her story of struggle, and Billy, of addiction. What does it mean for someone to be able to turn and look at the two of you as these beautiful women? What does it mean? It means hope. It means God still does what what God and only God can do. God still brings healing, and he still restores, and he still gives life, and he gives it back to us. What an amazing reality for anyone to be able to recognize the struggles that we have all faced because we've all got a story, we've all got a past, and God has dealt with every single one of us to set us free so that we can actually live in this life and we can obey him. And so now when Jesus would do something that was in obedience to what the Father showed him, who got the glory? That's what Jesus said he came to do, to release and reveal his Father's glory. We talk a lot about Christian maturity. Christian maturity has been reduced in, in the Christian church to actually attend church, I read my Bible, I study, I have a quiet time, I teach my class, I get involved, all of those things, so that somehow makes me grow in Christian maturity. 
Absolutely not true. Christian maturity is learning to stay in that realm of the Spirit more and more. It's about learning how to live in that reality more and more of my 24-hour day. I'm not processing life down here in the flesh. And again, we recognize that Jesus never once, that I can remember, when someone would come to him, when Jairus or someone would come and say, my daughter's sick. We never hear Jesus say, well, you know, I don't know how I think. I got to, Jairus, I got to think about this for a minute. I'm not sure how I feel about this. Because Jesus never once processed anything here within his mind and within his emotions. He was always exposing these things to the Father and the Spirit and responding in obedience to whatever he saw. And that plan has never changed. You want to hold one of those positions in that kingdom, and I hope you do. I hope we recognize that the rewards that God has established for us, the things that he has planned for us, the greatness that he sees in us, are not mystical and they're not mysterious. He tells us very clearly, if you want it, here it is. He wasn't trying to trick these disciples. He wasn't trying to confuse them. And he says, but let me tell you how it will look, and I'll end with this. Verse 42, but Jesus called them to him. I like that because if you're going to calm a difference between a, this group of disciples, I just I love that phrase, he called them to him. No better way to resolve a difference, to, to involve Jesus in that moment. And he said unto them, you know that they are which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. It's not going to be that way among you. But whosoever will be great. And that word is megas. Mega. If you're going to be one who by the very reality of your life is great because God allows you your influence and your ministry to expand. Not into huge churches, but lives being changed. Lives being changed and lives being changed and lives being changed. That impact to be great. If you want to be great, if you want to be that person, that person will be your minister. That's the word diaconus, deacon. It's not the formal position. He's saying if you want to be great, then you're going to be one who, who knows how to minister. And whoever will be chief takes on a, a relevance of being first. If you want to be chief, you shall be the servant of all. And that word is doulos. It's the lowest position that you could possibly take. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered to. Wow. If Jesus said, I didn't come to be ministered to. How many of us have sat in church for 10 years and 20 years and sometimes 30 years and are still feeling like we need to be ministered to? Something drastically wrong in that picture. It's not wrong to come to church and be fed. But God says, I've, I have fed you for 30 years. When are you going to get the strength to stand up? And accept the reality over your life. When are you going to be willing to step into all that I have designed for you? Because most people, church, is something that they participate in. They come to and they hear the message because the church service has now evolved around a message instead of around his presence. So we come for the message instead of encountering him. And they go home saying that was really a good message. Didn't change anything. Power of God that, that Jesus is telling these disciples is saying, I'm telling you this because I've got a group of you here that are going to change the world. If you're going to change the world, this is what's required. The sad commentary of, of, of the church is we don't have any dreams of changing the world anymore. That's not even our thought, that we can change the world. I want to tell you, for a group this size, this is several more than the disciples. Within this body, 
is the reality of a world changed. Nations falling at one time for the Lord. That reality is still possible. Jesus was very clear in his instruction. You're going to be great. I love it. And I'll even tell you what to do. And he says, and by the way, you're going to do it. You're going to be baptized. For each of you here, you're going to take that step. And you're going to drink of the cup. And he knew the fate, the price that each one of those men would pay. When they killed James, they were looking for Peter. Remember what happened to Peter that night? He was in prison, laying between two guards. It says that, that Herod's ready to, to put 34 guards on him to keep him in prison. He's lying in prison. And he kind of loses himself. And, and an angel comes to him and says, Peter, get up. Gird yourself and put on this cloak and follow me. And Peter is completely outside the prison before he realizes what has ever happened. And he goes to this house where his friends live and this young woman named Rhoda comes to the door and can't believe and won't believe that it's actually him. Isn't that a strange story? James is killed. Peter's miraculously saved. How do you account for that? If we don't involve God in our story, and I'm not saying this about Peter, if we don't understand God, then we want to understand that when we actually take this step, what are we doing? We're bringing in the sovereignty of God. We're bringing in His will. We're bringing in his purpose. We're bringing in his plan. And when something happens that creates that kind of contrast, I don't have to live in turmoil because I understand that the plan of God is not one I I will ever fully understand until I'm there looking at it. But the reality is that the great mystery is held and one thing happened to one and one happened to the other. And neither one of them is a reflection of their obedience. They were both obedient. They both drank of the cup. They both paid the price. Peter was just killed a little bit later. There's there's rich truth in this story. And it is deep and it's profound. And I hope for all of us that we have a desire to be great in his kingdom. Somewhere in us, it's like, I, I, I don't want to be mediocre. I don't want to be normal. I want to be one of these. I want to hold that position of honor in that millennial reign. It's not wrong to aspire to that. Or he would have corrected him. But he said, guys, it'll look very different. The humility, the service, will become the evidence that you're filled with my presence. You'll be the servant of all. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you tonight that we can come to this passage, to this reality, Lord, and just recognize that you said it very clearly before us. If they wanted to be great, this would be what would be required. The plan hasn't changed. How you deal with us, through us, and in us has not changed. And I pray, Lord, that we would have that desire, not just because of what will happen in the future, but because I get to live that extraordinary life right now. I get to live the supernatural reality of the Spirit living in me right now. I get to be the witness of the one who filled me and the evidence to a lost world of your power and your love and your goodness and kindness so that we can hear these stories of deliverance of addictions over, overwhelmed and overcome, and let it rise, bring hope and raise hope in other people's hearts and minds. So we thank you for it tonight, for the witness, for the reality, for the truth of it. In Jesus' name, amen.